So let's get us started. So this is our first time using WebEx. Uh, we'll see how it goes. And, um, and during the speak, please mute uh, your, uh, your speaker uh, because you know, this could cause some trouble uh, for WebEx. So um, it's my honor and a pleasure to introduce our speaker. Um, Nick Sturgeon currently serves as a director of information security for IU Health and IU School of Medicine. His responsibilities include supporting the IU School of Medicine Cyber Risk Management Program and leading IU Health's security research and red team. Nick has worked in information technology for over 15 years with 10 years in cybersecurity, nine years in law enforcement, and 10 years in state government. Nick earned his Bachelor of Science in Management Information Systems from Indiana State in 2003 and a Master of Science in Cyber Forensics from Purdue 2015. Nick has extensive experience in incident response, digital investigations, criminal investigations, digital media recovery, criminal law, data governance, endpoint protection, network and log analysis, vulnerability management, security operations, incident management, project management, project management, as an instructor and a service implementation of management security services. Throughout his career, he has supported multiple industries and sectors, including academia, state, local, tribal, territorial, uh, governments, healthcare, information technology, and manufacturing. In addition to his current duties, Nick is a host on two podcasts. Is a part-time information security instructor at the UTSA and adjunct professor at the University of Southern Indiana. He also serves as a board member for the Cyber Resilience Institute, Ohio River Valley chapter of the Cloud Security Alliance and the National Council of Registered IAOS. So with further ado, let's welcome Nick. Hey, thank you guys for having me on and I will say I'm glad I'm, I guess, the guinea pig for this new setup, given our current circumstances with the COVID-19. And actually, when we talk about what's going on now with COVID-19 and risk management is perfect. This is a really good introduction into why cyber risk management is needed. And with all the additional constraints on resources and new potential vectors for cyber criminals to utilize the work from home situation or the uh, crisis to benefit themselves, it's really perfect for the discussion on cyber risk management. So. I want to thank you guys for allowing me to come in to talk about uh, cyber risk management and, and why it's important for an overall cybersecurity program. Um, I am going to share my screen here, uh, get the presentation up. Sure. Uh, share. So, can you guys see my screen? Yep. Okay. So, 
I, I originally developed this presentation more for kind of an introductory into what cyber risk management is. A little bit technical, going to cover some of the frameworks and, and just the background and, and standards and regulations. So this is really a high level overview of cyber risk management. So, but why does this matter? I mean, bottom line up front, why do organizations, why with all the, the technologies and everything that's going on in cybersecurity, why do, why do we need a risk management program? And really bottom line is it's to help prevent businesses shutting their doors, exposing information, whether it's customer data, it's health information, um, PII, EPHI, all of that stuff. Risk management goes into helping keeping this stuff from happening. And since I'm talking to, you know, an academic uh, group, I mean, it's not just the, the high-end PI or, you know, or IP, sorry, the intellectual property um, that companies have. It's research data that is um, being sought after just as much as anything else. Um, the, the potentials beyond just the public relations impact or the loss of data or um, some of the other things that we think about when we think of loss from a cyber incident, but it's also the government regulation or and regulators that are coming out with their fines and their um, penalties for failing to implement cybersecurity uh, within your organization. I mean, all of that are the negative outcomes of failed cyber risk management or a lack of cyber risk management. Talk some case study. Now, this particular case, I'm, I'm leaving out the particular city per, to protect the innocent as well as the guilty. Uh, probably won't take a, a detective to figure out which city we're talking about. But a very large major U.S. city was hit with Sam Sam ransomware variant back in 2018. What we have here is just kind of the the very high level effects of what happened. Thousands of city employees could not get access to their computers. Agencies, law enforcement, courts could not do their civic duties. They're the things that they are set up to do to provide services to citizens. People couldn't pay their water bill. Um, traffic tickets, again, could not be processed. A, several years worth of body cam data from the police department was gone. 
And just think of the, uh, on that from a criminal aspect in criminal justice, the evidence that could have put somebody in jail that had committed anywhere from minor traffic infractions all the way up to very serious crimes, that evidence is gone. It cannot be used because of this particular cyber incident. And depending on which number you read and and which article that you read on this, it's anywhere from 17 to $18 million worth of damage to this city. That's a lot of money. State governments, city governments, whether large or small, that amount of money does a lot of damage. And that's a big part of a budget. And all of the citizens that aren't able to take care of the things that they need to take care of because the city didn't have access to a good portion of its IT systems, huge impact. And this is something that this city is probably still dealing with today. Even the positives out of this incident will be felt for years to come. Now, I had the opportunity last summer to meet one of the individuals and listen to her talk. And she was, uh, I, I can't remember her exact position then. It, it was it may have been a, a CISO row or, or someone very high within their security department listening to their response and, and what they had to do as a result of this. It was fascinating um, from a, an incident response perspective. But the impact is going to be felt for years to come. And here's the thing. It could have most likely been avoided. And in their after action report, what was found, and one of the big things here, as you can see in bold, is there were gaps in their formal risk assessment. And had they taken it seriously, had they put the proper amount of resources and time and attention into doing a risk assessment and doing one right, in my opinion, that incident probably would not have happened. And if it did, it probably would have been minimized in its scale and impact. So I I covered a little bit of the topics of what we're going to get through. Uh, So I won't read this verbatim, but as we get into it, you know, let's, let's start from the beginning. I'm going to assume that you guys don't know what cyber risk management is. It's not an insult on anybody's intelligence, but I want to make sure we get on a solid base and that we're all going from this point forward from the same, um, same point. So I'm sure most everybody here has heard of NIST, the National Institute for Standards and Technology. In their special publication 800-30, this is what they define 
as uh, what risk is. It's the negative, it's the net negative impact of the exercise of a vulnerability, considering both the probability and the impact of the occurrence. Now, there's some really key points in this in probability and impact. So what is the chance or the likelihood of a bad thing happening? And then what is the impact? And I know being at, from Purdue, when we talk about quantification and, and wanting hard data to make good decisions, probability you, is quantifiable. The same thing with impact. That can be dollars. It could be days out of service or whatever it may be, but we can use those two points to help quantify our decision-making. So some of the elements of risk, we have our threats. These are the, could be the bad guys that are out there that want to attack our individual organizations. These could be, you know, individual points of, of malware or anything like that. Again, likelihood, what are the chances of this happening? Um, very, very important, especially when we talk about prioritization and getting resources um, for different things and, and lining those up. So, I mean, why do we want to put a whole lot of expensive resources to something that is very, very unlikely to happen? just doesn't make sense. The vulnerabilities, again, looking internally to IT systems or our physical uh, layouts, what, where are our weaknesses? Where are those, you know, where are weak links in our chain? The asset value, again, this kind of goes into impact. Um, again, why would we put a whole lot of expensive protections around assets that aren't that valuable. It, again, or if we have our crown jewels, that could mean us staying in business or not, and we're not providing the right amount of resources around those assets, we're just opening ourselves up for a lot of bad stuff to happen. And then the compensating controls, these are the things that you know, we've got, we know bad things are going to happen, but when they do, we have these things to give us buffers. And um, they're also the the way we act and the way we handle uh, when you know, bad things do happen. Now, how do we respond to risk? And it's just not all hair on fire. It's just not panicking. I mean, when we talk about uh, the current situations with the, the COVID-19 issue and we see these panic buys, now that's not really how we want to respond to risk. We want to do it smartly. We want to make sure that we have these things in place and how we handle risk. Now, I will mention, too, that individually, we are constantly evaluating risk, whether you realize it or not. 
whether we decide to speed or cross the street when the uh, light is you know, showing us the red hand, those little decisions are us responding to risk. Well, we can avoid it. We can say, you know what? I'm just not going to leave the house. And that's pretty much, you know, keeping it contextual to what's going on today. By us quarantining ourselves at home, we are trying to avoid the risk altogether. Stopping those behaviors or processes that introduce that risk into our lives or our businesses or whatever, we can try to reduce. We're going to take steps and measures that will reduce the opportunity for that risk to happen. Or you can be like some people and be like, oh, you know what, I think it's a hoax or I don't think I, it's going to affect me and just accept whatever happens. We in business, you know, for years, uh, as I was getting out into the professional world and even going through grad school, as cyber is really ramping up and the data breaches are more and more, most companies were saying, you know what, bottom line, the, the cost to implement these security controls or these security applications is so much more than the damage, I'm just going to accept it. Lastly, we can say, you know what, we're going to transfer the risk. And typically that's done through insurance or through our contracts. We're going to say insurance company, I'm going to pay this premium. And when something bad happens, I'm going to rely on you to cover anything, you know, any of the cost that um, I incur as a result of that risk happening. Now, I will say if anybody has any questions, um, you know, if you want to chime in, please do. I know it's a little bit harder over the WebEx, um, but if you do have a question, you know, um, please feel free um, to, to chime in. Or if you want to wait until after um, I get through here, that's fine as, as well. So, and I love NIST. I mean, NIST has been around for years and, and the work that they do on cybersecurity related stuff, risk management is great. One downside is they're very verbose uh, when with their definitions and, and their um, documents. And I really, I hate having this <laughs> A particular slide in this presentation just because it's it's very wordy um, but you know being the good uh, academic that I am you know want to have that in there but let's let's break that down a little bit more in, into really what risk management is if the first step is it's we have to understand what our business is who, what, when, where. We, we have to know who we are. From there, we then can start identifying the particular things that are unique to my organization or your organization. And what those particular things that could cause us harm. From there, we 
do our analyzation or analysis and, and analyze what those negative outcomes would be for those given situations. We look at the threats, we look at our potential responses, the actions and decisions that we are going to take based on those particular situations. Then once we have done all of that, the second part is more of our action. These are the things that we're doing to minimize either the likelihood of that bad thing happening, or we try to minimize the impact of those bad things happening. And either in the, the minimizing the likelihood or impact, we are doing compensating controls where you're changing our processes, we're putting in safeguards, but all of that together is really the action piece of managing risk, at least again, from my point of view. Now, where cyber risk management comes in, all we're really doing is we're overlaying our IT infrastructure, our digital infrastructure onto that. So everything I just said, now just apply it to our technology, our data, our networks, supply chain, all of that stuff. The added thing is, is we are doing this on a constant basis. It's not a one and done. And I'll get into more of that here in a little bit. But we are where cyber is not necessarily a unicorn is that this process can be applied to other things. It could be financial risk. It could be um, all hazards, you know, coming from a public safety background. This is something that police agencies, fire agencies, we look at an all hazards approach. So in that aspect, and, and I hate to, and I, I kind of get some cyber folks a little angry at me at times for saying, hey, we're not a unicorn. We're not that special in the grand scheme of things is to be taken seriously, to really get that buy-in at the executive level we need to realize that we're just one piece within the business, one piece within the organization. On the other hand there, it does take folks that have the experience, that know the technologies, that know the threats to be able to run it. But in the context of the business, we need to be able to fit in with the the entire organization, the entire enterprise. So why take a risk-based approach? Well, I've mentioned some of this already is when we quantify, when we do the research and the analysis and we start looking at this thing through you know, a rigored analytical approach, and we have the data, then we can really say what the true risk are and thus 
be able to apply and prioritize what resources, and it's limited. Every organization has a finite amount of resources available to use. And I've seen it, I've been in, you know, number of different agencies and everybody's project is their baby and they wanted to get it through and they want it to be you know, funded and all of that stuff. But when you are competing against every other uh, part of the organization, resources are finite. And so you have to be able to apply those resources to those things that are going to have the highest impact of reducing risk. But even then, going through this risk management process, like I have mentioned already, is that we're using proven methods and techniques. We're not just guessing. It isn't a gut feel. It isn't Nick just saying, well, I think, and I wanna you know, go with the wind here, put my finger out and say, well, I think this is what we need to be doing. We have data behind our decisions. And that data and the facts are powerful when it comes to talking with executives and, and, and those within the C-suite. But two, it, it's a, I use the broken glass kind of um, methodology. Once you start looking through a risk lens, it, it really does change the way you think about everything that you do. And once that glass is broken, you can't ever go back. And I, I apologize of background noise. It's the, the downside of um, <laughs> being work from home. Um, but when you are going through this analytical process and you're using the data, you're now giving the C-suite, you're giving management really a power in being able to decide which of those controls are going to be implemented. And that is huge. We're not wasting a bunch of you know, resources needlessly on things that aren't going to work. Um, again, to to offend, I guess, the, the cybersecurity crowd here, more of the vendors, and again, not really meaning to offend, but when you've got 50 vendors that are coming at you selling blinky lights and all sorts of cool toys, and, and these things, how do you know it's going to solve the problems that you have? And risk management and going through this process and this program will help you know what to implement a lot better than just let, oh, this has got some cool blinky light. And this is, so I work with a lot of um, privacy and compliance driven folks, and this is where I upset them. So I'm an equal opportunity um, in who I upset. <laughs> but um, 
compliance management, you know, it, in healthcare, we're heavily regulated. The Office of Civil Rights under the Health and Human Services uh, Agency is our primary regulator, and HIPAA is no joke. I mean, it is hefty. It, there's, it's very prescriptive in some aspects. The government will come down with the heavy hand if you are found to be in violation of HIPAA. And so what happens in these really heavy regulated industries like healthcare and finance, there, there is a mentality that tends to happen on checking the box. Well, are we, you know, the regulation says we have to do X, Y, and Z or A through Z. And we're to just go through this process of checking the box. And I'm sure this will make a lot of security folks happy. Compliance does not equate to being secure. I am sure that a lot of these companies that have been breached thought they were compliant. And I thought that uh, they thought they were doing security the right way. And I'm sorry to say that's not the case. Checking the box does not make you secure. On the other hand, you do have to be cognizant of what regulations that you are mandated under and have to follow. It is a risk. So you can't just completely ignore those regulatory obligations because if you don't follow them, then you're putting your organization at risk of being in violation of, of one or more laws. It is one of my philosophies that if you do security right, the compliance will come, the compliance piece will follow. And in this process, you do have to, to understand what those regulatory burdens are and map them, uh, what you're doing to those uh, regulations. But the compliance piece will come. It, and that's something you'll hear me say at least two or three more times through the remainder of this program is when you do security right, the compliance piece will come. So why take this risk-based approach? Well, the biggest thing is, again, you start, you're able to prioritize the, the biggest things the, that will cause you the most harm. Whether that's regulation, whether that's a technology risk, whether it's people risk, you're able to prioritize those things. And, call it the 80-20 rule. When you do that, you're probably on a, you know, some statistical average taking care of 80% of those things that will cause you the most damage. But it also, I think one of the, another huge important aspect is you become more proactive. I've been in a number of IT organizations where you're basically just a firefighter. 
you're moving from one fire to the next fire to the next fire and it's like a dog chasing its tail you're never getting caught up and when you start having these prioritized list of things to do and knowing and applying those things strategically you're able to become proactive and then you instead of being a firefighter you're actually making headway and i've been there i've multiple organizations where even when i was a cop doing it stuff i felt more like a firefighter than i did a cop <laughs> and it, it's frustrating because you don't feel like you're ever making any headway so and i talked about this a little bit a couple of slides ago but under that risk-based approach you just you're only worried about checking the box and focused on the requirements and focused on you know well are we doing this and it really isn't how well are you doing those things it's well we're doing them we're 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 compliant with the law and that check box mentality gets ingrained into the organization. And the other thing, and the thing I, I, I think is most troublesome, in my opinion, when we are focused on compliance, is those regulations end up being the ceiling of what organizations think they should be doing not the not the floor not the minimum but the ceiling and so the mindset of organizations are well the government says i need to be doing these things and any more than that what am i getting out of it so at that point, it's a financial decision, even a, maybe whether or not they, they think they're taking a risk-based decision or not. They don't see the value in going above those standards because the government has now, this is what I've got to do and I don't want to do anything else. It happens organization in and out. So it's another kind of foot stomp moment on why I think taking a compliance-based approach is the wrong approach. So the another important note here, and I hit on it a little bit earlier, is that this cyber risk management program should be incorporated into the enterprise risk management program. Because there are other risk to a business outside the cyber risk and I, being a cyber security professional i want to think that these cyber risk will cripple and are you know absolutely the most important risk that the organization should be addressing but in real life there are other risks that are just as damaging to an organization other than cyber risk 
but when you're also incorporated into the risk management at the enterprise level, you start talking the same language. One of the downsides and, and another uh, kind of points I like to pick on folks in, in the cybersecurity world is we tend to want to use our own jargon and talk our own language. And I think that does more detrimental or does more to detriment our, our, our standpoint or our conversations with the C-suite when we just talk the bits and bytes. We need to be able to speak in a language that our you know, senior leadership, our executive leadership folks understand. I like talking bits and bytes more, you know, just as much as every other cyber uh, geek out there. And, it, and that's fine to do when you're in that company of other cyber folks. But when you're talking to executives, they speak a whole nother language. And when we use, and we can use risk as that kind of uh, Rosetta Stone and to be able to translate that that geek speak into corporate speak. Now we're talking, again, probabilities, we're impacts, we're talking dollars and cents. Those are the type of things that executives understand. As much as we wanna, you know, talk about the, you know, the technical details of SAM SAM or other vulnerabilities or, you know, they just, they, they don't understand it. They're not ever going to be true cyber uh, folks. And they don't need to be. That's why they have us there. But it's our responsibility as cyber professionals to adapt to the organization and be able to talk in their language. It may not seem fair, but that's just the reality of uh, of uh, of the world that we live in. Now, yeah, I've mentioned regulations and, and standards a little bit more on the regulations, but just to, to define it, regulations are those things that the government says that you have to do. And if you don't do it, you can be put in jail or you could be levied a, fines or other types of ju judgments. Now standards, they're voluntary. NIST is not a regulation. And, it, and when we, <laughs> and I hear quite a bit, well, I'm compliant with NIST. No, 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 you're not compliant with NIST. NIST is not a regulation, it's a voluntary standard. It's a group of individuals coming together to say, we think these are the best things that the industry should do. Now, the, the one kind of caveat in that is standards can become mandatory through contracts. PCI, the payment card industry standard, is enforced through contracts. So the credit card companies say you will do these things to be able to do business with us. Now, this is a tool that organizations can use when they are 
working with third-party vendors to ensure security. Say, I want you to do implement these standards. And thus, it, through the legal contract process, then they, they become enforceable. This is just a small sampling of the regulations that are out there um, from the U.S. standpoint, as well as um, uh, more with the GDPR from a Europe standpoint. But it, each country has their own set of regulations that companies have to follow from a cybersecurity standpoint. And if you're doing business internationally, you have to be cognizant of those regulations. And I also have some uh, individual state regulations here, uh, CCPA and the Ohio Data Protection Act. Um, more states are passing um, GDPR-like um, type of uh, regulations. Um, not seeing a whole lot of necessarily cybersecurity regulations. A lot of it's focused on privacy, which I think is missing a little bit of the, the boat. I think privacy and security are um, two different sides of the same coin, but that's a topic for another day. Now, standards, PCI, DSS, NIST has a bunch of them out there. DISA, um, SANS Top 20, um, IEEE, these are all um, the either nonprofit organizations or in this standpoint, they're organizations within the government or uh, INSA as well. But usually these groups of people are from academia, industry, government coming together and saying, what do we want to say these, you know, the, are the, the, the way we want industry to, or organizations within our industry to, to do. And again, completely voluntary, but they, they do provide some good baseline activities and things that organizations, sh you know, should be doing um, to be secure. Pardon me one second, I'm gonna take a quick drink. So now that we've covered quite a bit of material already with why it's important down to the things that organizations are mandated to do through regulation or even the things that they can do voluntarily through standards, let's get into a little bit more of uh, the, the risk management frameworks. And some of these are voluntary as well. That none of the ones that I have in here are are, re, are enforced by any uh, organization, at least that I'm aware of. And just as there are standards on cybersecurity frameworks, there are a number of risk management frameworks. Uh, FAIR is one of the ones, and I, we'll talk about it a little bit more uh, here in a couple slides. NIST 853 Rev4, and I believe Rev5 is in draft mode. Um, I, ISO, COVID. I mean, these are just some that are out there. Now, I will mention on like um, ISO 
and COVID generally cost a lot of money. I think just to even bring in um, ISO to do uh, like the 27001, 27 it's like 50,000, I mean, or, or more. I mean, they're, they do cost to be certified, whereas NIST is, you know, it, there's no cost to it. It's just, or whatever the cost to be to implement those things. So I did want to point that out. Same thing, COBIT with ISACA. So just an example here of what uh, the FAIR risk framework is and kind of that that cycle of, of activities and, and different attributes within the framework and what organizations can do to help build up and, and quantify uh, risk and, and the things and their approach that they want to do. Um, a little bit of a newer framework, and I want to say less than five or so years. Um, I may I may be off a little bit by a couple years, but it's a relatively new uh, framework. I was first introduced. Uh, into this uh, framework when I was at, at Ernst & Young as a consultant. Uh, to me, a little bit more actionable. It's less heavy of a lift than, say, NIST 853. Again, I love NIST. They do a lot of good work. But one of the complaints, and it's just not a complaint for me, it's others out there, is they're very detailed, very heavy, and again, the wording, even going through a lot of this, uh, the special publications are are very uh, verbose. And if you want to you know, get a good night's sleep, um, you know, it never hurts to pick up one of their uh, special publications. And I love it. I've read um, a, a number of them, but it it does take a little bit of time to get through. Um, so when we talk about NIST, um, this is just uh, kind of a, a graphic that I put together based on their framework. Uh, their black and white uh, image just wasn't cutting it for me for presentation purposes. But this is basically kind of the, the process that you go through. Um, and the, the thing to note, even with the, the FAIR process, and I think what makes both the NIST and FAIR, some of the better ones in my opinion, is that it is a continual process. It, you're not just one and done. It's an ongoing uh, effort throughout the year or over the years. Um, just a little bit of a breakdown of what each of those steps are. I'm not going to, to read the, these things verbatim. I will make the slides available um, if you do want them. Um, again, just the last few bits of the framework. So now, and this is, I think, one of the, the things I, I kind of debated about whether to include in this particular presentation or not, because again, when I initially developed the, this slide, it was more for those within industry um, that aren't currently doing cyber risk management. 
but I think there's still some some things here to take away. Um, depending on what you are wanting to do uh, once you graduate and, and you finish your program, I think they're keeping these in mind no matter what you are going to do, I think are still very important aspects to, you know, to have and think about. And as you're conversing with other folks within the cyber organization that you may work for, just helpful to have. First and foremost, in any program or project that you're building, having executive buy-in is important. If they do not feel that the effort, the time and resources are worthy and going to improve the organization or going to advance the mission of the organization, it's not going to happen. Plain and simple. Now, some of this conversation will be had by a, a CISO or other senior management with the executive. Um, leadership folks, but it's still important. You know, if you're as you know, if you're coming into maybe entry level positions or maybe not so entry level positions, that you're thinking the way that the CISO's thinking, so they can take that and arm themselves with the conversation that they're going to have with the leadership team. Strategically, everything that a the security team or cybersecurity uh, department within an organization needs to line up with the enterprise business strategy. And I want to stress this again, is that as cybersecurity professionals within an organization, we are there to support the organization, that business. We need to align our activities with, with what the business is doing. If we are going against what the organization is doing, we're not going to be successful. It is imperative, no matter what, uh, if you're doing blue team, red team, it doesn't matter what part of uh, cybersecurity you're going into, we need to align and be advancing the mission of the organization. And we also need to be good stewards and then we need to be good partners with the other folks within our company, with the other verticals. Having these siloed approaches does no good. We need to be good partners within these organizations. A little bit of my soapbox moment there. Um, when you get buy-in from the other parts of the organization and we're helping them solve their problems, it's amazing what can get done when we're not bickering and infighting and actually working together within the organization, things get done quickly. But when we're solving these problems, we, as cybersecurity professionals, we need to understand the organization's maturity, the culture, financial health. We also need to understand the external 
uh, factors like market conditions and again, the laws and regulations, um, all of that, we may not be the best to understand, but if we work with others within the business that can help us understand better and make us better in the solutions that we're, we're providing, again, goes a long, long way um, to making the business more secure. Um, yeah, other considerations when you're we're talking about building a risk management program or other program, it doesn't matter. Communication is important. If you're not talking with other people, if you're not letting them know what's going on, successes, failures, everything in between, um, and that in itself is a risk. But we have to be able to communicate these things. You know, if you're working in a security awareness type of capacity, being able to work with HR in crafting education or trainings based on the real risk that you are seeing um, in your your jobs is important. You know, yeah, we get phishing, you know, we all understand social engineering, but wouldn't it be more impactful if you can take actual use cases that you're seeing and communicate that to the throughout the organization, I think that's a lot more powerful. And I think, at least in my opinion, I feel that through this risk management process, we can help identify those things. Um, again, roles and responsibilities, I think understanding the different parts of the organization can you can help that can help you craft how you talk to somebody and how you communicate it to them so they understand it better. Um, the governance risk compliance software, I think is a, it's another thing. A lot of these, uh, there's um, Archer by RSA, there's a number of other uh, GRC platforms that can help kind of be the central point for um, managing these risks and and all the things that go along with risk management. Um, supply chain risk management is important. Um, dealing with your logistics folks and understanding or whoever's owning the relationships with the vendors and, and very, very important. You look at Target and some other breaches where it came in through a third party. Uh, other things like that are, are, are something that are important to consider when building this type of program. Um, so I, and I cannot stress enough, this process is not linear. It's not point A to point B. And once you get to B, you're done. It is cyclical. It's always going, um, as you, and this process, you may iterate through multiple times within a year or a month or even a day. Um, but again, as you look at to me, whatever uh, risk management framework, if it's not cyclical, it's not a good program, at least in my opinion. Um, but again, uh, the heart of that is mentioned in communicating the things that you're seeing throughout uh, each uh, step of the that phase or program is, is important. Now, this may not be necessarily uh, something that would relate
to the purposes of this class. But I mean, when you're talking about, you know, even working with the red team, understanding when do I need to start coordinating my pen test or my vulnerability scans? When do I need to start, uh, based on the findings, start patch management or mitigating those things that we find? So, uh, though not necessarily something that you all may find particularly important, but as you're working through, when should I be doing some of these activities, whether it's, you know, um, again, pen test, vulnerability scan, um, implementing into the projects, um, all that good stuff. So this is just kind of a breakdown of things that an organization could do um, throughout the quarter, again, as they're doing this, spreading that work out so it's happening throughout the year and not just ramping up, you know, that one point in time in the year when a, a risk assessment's due because of whatever reason. Um, there's a lot of work that happens to ramp up real quick. And then one of the things that happens is there's a, a huge drop off and things don't tend to get done. Now, uh, and the, the mitigation and the follow up tend not to happen. And looking at OCR and what they find for, it's not typically the fact that an organization got breached. It's the fact that they didn't uh, follow through. They didn't create what is called a, a risk management plan, which is just basically a, a project plan to how they're going to remediate or mitigate the threats that they found or the risks that they found. And then following up, that's what they hammer uh, organizations for is not the, is not doing the follow through. And that's, Probably one of the reasons I think if an, a framework isn't that cyclical process is part of my reasoning why I don't think it's a good framework if it's just that linear versus the cyclical. But anyway, frame and scope, just some, again, um, other activities that could be doing the risk assessment. And again, could happen at any point during the year. Um, then just starting the planning process all over towards the end of the year. Um, some other things to think about, you know, strategic alignment mentioned already. Any, and this goes for any project. Again, you want to have smart goals, specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and timely. You want to be able to understand what are our um, indicators of success, those KPIs and those metrics. Um, you know, and there's some, for some of you data geeks out there, which I'm one of, um, some of the things that you can consider, you know, reduction in the number of security incidents, um, number of new unmitigated risk, time to remediate um, or mean time to remediate. There's a number of different, um, metrics that are out there um, that could be an indicator of, uh, of success. And that's going to depend uh, on a case-by-case -case basis, whatever uh, the organization um, really deems of what that indicated indications are. But you want to know what success looks like and be able to measure as you're doing these things. 
So I think I have a couple more minutes left. So case study number two, um, very interesting. This goes back to, I think, 2011. This security guard at a Texas hospital sets up a botnet on this hospital's network to attack a rival hacker gang. Like when I first talk, saw this, I'm like, really? Why is a security guard um, <laughs> in a hacker collective or a hacker gang? There's some failures there. Um, but then there's some other failures along the way that I, I do believe if we were talking risk management, separation of duties, um, uh, lease privileges, some basic things probably would have kept this from happening. And then because it's Texas, it was a summertime, it's a hospital, a lot of things could have gone wrong uh, with this. Uh, the guy ended up pleading guilty, um, mainly because of the video that um, <laughs> he posted and, and took care of himself or took of himself as he's doing these things. I'm gonna try to jump out here real quick and play um, this video. Um, but I want you to look at some of the things from a risk management standpoint of had a risk management program been in place, you know, <laughs> what would you have caught either through technical controls or through policies or procedures? So, of course, he's a hacker. He's got to be in a hoodie. <laughs> so, I don't know if you guys can hear that, but he's talking about his, uh, what he's doing. He's dropping a botnet on a computer. He's got it on a thumb drive. So, at that point... So you could see that he had his security badge. He swipes up to some random floor within the hospital. And you see that he's at a computer. I mean, why is a security guard able to log in on a computer and install a, a this program or whatever you know he used to install the botnet? Again, I mentioned lease privileges. I mean, he's a security guard. Yeah, he's going to have access to the floors. I mean, just give him the benefit of, of the doubt there. But the fact that his, he's got login credentials that most likely have some sort of advanced privileges, it may not be full admin privileges, but enough, you know, super user um, probably at minimum to install this type of application. Well, you know, making some assumptions here, you know, do they have uh, a vi antivirus or 
Um, at that point, EDR really, endpoint detection and response really wasn't uh, a thing yet, but, you know, we did they have antivirus? What other um, controls in place did they not have? Because, I mean, obviously he was able to install it. Um, I don't know if anybody wants to chime in on some other things that they think a, a risk management uh, program would have caught to keep this from happening. I personally think if the hospital um, set up a reasonable multi-level security or have a reasonable RBAC, I think this would not, not happen at all. Um, and I'm not sure if this is a part of the um, the risk management as well, but I assume, like as an organization, you if you enforce certain like a security policy, you definitely should have a clear definition of what or who can do what, right? So I think there's definitely something messed up. No, I mean, and you're absolutely right. I mean, the going through, and, and even from an HR standpoint. Uh, you know, did they do a security uh, or background check on this guy um, to see who his friends are, reference checks? I mean, being in, in a hacker collective, you know, typically, you know, there's some good people on it that, you know, in some white hat hacker collectives, but it, I mean, there's some things there, red flags to me, even just doing some non-technical controls would have probably saved this company or this hospital from being able to be victim of this type of uh, attack. And this is a, a, a pure example of an insider threat. So, um, you know, that's one of the things, I mean, I'm a technical guy, but some of these controls don't have to be super technical. But when the, the policies fell, those technical controls like an EDR or um, lease privilege, you know, on an AD or access, you know, identity access management, say, okay, this guy's a security guard. Here's where he can log on to maybe one machine or a couple machines based on, you know, classification, but not some random person's computer somewhere in the hospital. So, um, yeah, it just, it's, again, I mentioned that broken glass type of um, uh, mentality. Once you start looking at, uh, through this with um, a risk management or risk-based um, lens, it, the world does change quite a bit. Um, so let me get back to here. I've got the link to the uh, video if you want to watch it all the way through. But uh, just kind of a recap of what happened uh, as far as what the impact and outcome was. Um, again, <laughs> HVAC unit. <laughs> I mean, the, just think of the, the, the potential impact to human life had something gone wrong, somebody else exploited the
the um, the vulnerability that he set up. Um, not only you know patient lives were at risk, the medication uh, that's needed to be temperature controlled, the specimens. I mean, there's just a lot of bad stuff that could have happened as a result of this um, insider threat. Um, so yeah, I think that puts me right at the hour. I, I, any questions, any comments? You had mentioned that there was a new possible um, revision for NIST. What is the new direction they're taking in that new uh, revision five that's in production? Yeah, it's incorporating the new privacy framework. So the uh, NIST privacy framework uh, 1.0, I believe, uh, came out towards the end of last year. And with it, it aligns to uh, the NIST cybersecurity framework uh, as far as some of the verbiage and um, even how it's how CSF has the five different functions. There are uh, five similar functions within uh, the the privacy framework. Uh, and it's been a, a minute since I've looked at the, the draft version, but um, I do believe that revision five incorporates the privacy piece uh, into um, 1.0 or, or Rev 4, I'm, I'm sorry. Thank you. You're welcome. Good question. Any other questions? Hi, Nick. Um, awesome talk. And you mentioned a couple of different frameworks from different organizations, like one of them is NIST. Um, so I wonder, as a organization, uh, which framework should I choose? Or maybe another way to ask this question is, you know, as a, a company, um, we probably have some compliance thing to do. Yeah. You know, one way to do that is I look at whatever compliance I need to fulfill and I pick up one framework. The other way would be, you know, I pick up some framework which might not satisfy some compliance at all. So I, you see, like there's a there's a conflict between an ideal framework and some compliance you want to achieve. Yeah. So it, and again, I'm not necessarily advocating or recommending one. I think it is an organizational decision what they they do choose. NIST, one of the good things about NIST is they have mapped a lot of that, um, the risk management framework to the CSF, to the different regulatory um, requirements, HIPAA being probably the biggest one. Um, there, There's also a tool that I did not mention in here called the Secure Control Framework. It's an uh, open sourced uh, organization that actually maps out almost 
all of the regulatory and other frameworks, I mean, it, they have done a lot of good work. Um, they also, from a like a risk assessment standpoint, ask some questions, risk-based questions or assessment-based questions that then align to the different um, frameworks. The only one that isn't there is high trust uh, because it's proprietary. But I, th so that's another tool organizations could could potentially use. Again, it's open source. It's a collaborative um, process. And there are a lot of um, folks from industry involved in that. Um, but I, it really, yeah, the, to go back to the other part of your question, the, the compliance piece is definitely something they have to think about. Um, and in choosing a framework, again, not to re reinvent the wheel, but if there is something that's already out there that's mapped to that, whether it's SOX or um, GLBA or um, HIPAA, if there's something that's already out there, they may want to look at that first um, and then decide, okay, do we want to start from scratch or utilize what somebody else has done? Now, the thing I will say is not doing anything is not an excuse. I think at some point you have to make a decision and go down a path. And and through the good thing is if you're they're doing that um, iterative process and continual cycle, then they can say, are we have we gone down the right path? If not, okay, where can we adjust to make sure we're going down the path that we need to be going down? But not doing anything in my opinion, isn't acceptable. And according, and if they're under a regulatory um, uh, scrutiny like HIPAA, not doing anything will get them in trouble with OCR. Uh, it, the one thing within HIPAA, it's they, you don't have to go full, you know, throw every single available resource or dollar um, at a cybersecurity program, it's reasonable to what that organization is from size to um, it, they they take all of that into consideration. So, you know, a single practice office doesn't have to throw the same controls that an IU Health or a, a large uh, healthcare system would need to put in so they do allow some leeway based on size of the organization so but the one thing is you've got to do something you just cannot do it um, there's actually a, per, a single practice provider just a couple weeks ago that came out that was hit with a substantial uh, fine from ocr because they weren't doing uh, risk management thank you you're welcome any other questions? All right, let's thank Nick again. Thank you very much for having me. Awesome, I think WebEx is working well. Yeah, I, it was a good experience. Apologize for the background. That That is the, the time we live in, I guess, with all of this work from home.
All right. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Jerry. I appreciate it. I appreciate you doing this. Yeah. Bye-bye. See ya. See ya.